the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and they were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Those are verses 40 to 46 of Psalm 106, verses 19 through 48 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, October the 3rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, going to look at, finish our look at the um, prophecy of Hosea in chapter 14, verses 1 to 9. We're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 39 to 49, and continuing in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22, verse 30 through chapter 23, verse 11. So Hosea, uh, remember, has declared through the Lord that um, that there would be judgment against the northern kingdom and ultimately against the southern kingdom as well. He's not prophesying just against Israel, that northern kingdom. He, he, he's, he is primarily speaking to the northern kingdom, uh, which is where um, Elijah, Elisha, those guys were up in the northern kingdom. That's the first one to fall. So these, this is after the death of Solomon when the kingdom was divided between ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. The two tribes in the south are, the, are Judah and Benjamin, and they're based in Jerusalem. And so the, the northern kingdom of the other ten tribes. So what you get here is, is that, that a plea from the Lord <laughs> and from Hosea. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. So, in other words, what he's saying is, is that if my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways and they will repent, then I will heal them. And so that he's calling them to that promise from Second Chronicles seven fourteen: Return to the Lord, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. So what he's saying is, is that turn to the Lord, confess your sins to him, ask him to take away by forgiving your iniquity, and in doing so, then we will pay with bulls, the vows of our lips, so that we will make we will make enough sacrifices to 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 take care of the vows we make to return to you. Assyria shall not save us. That's that, that, indeed they won't. <laughs> They'll take them in. We will not ride on horses. Now horses are uh, they were sort of um, instruments of war. So that's the reason Jesus comes into town, for instance, on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey. A donkey is not used for war. Horses were. So what, he, what it's saying is we're going to trust in the Lord. We're not going to trust in an alliance with Assyria. We're not going to trust in military strength and might. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands, in you the orphan finds mercy. So they will become as orphans because they're going to, they're going to renounce the alliances of protection that they have with other nations. They're going to renounce their ability to wage war on their own, and then they're going to renounce these other gods. And so at that point, they will be orphans. And so, and then they're falling upon the Lord in that place. 
I will heal, this is God speaking now, I will heal their apostasy. In other words, I'll bring them back to me. They'll worship in spirit and truth, as Jesus says. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I'll be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lilies. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. So there's this great promise of the re- re- restoration of the people inherent in their return. God says, I will do exactly what I have always promised I would do. What I promised that you read in Second Chronicles 7, what you read when Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, all those things. The, uh, yes, I am that person. I am that God who will forgive and restore my people, and, and I will restore them in beauty. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. In other words, God's going to exalt them. For what? For doing great things for him? No, for returning to him. That's it. That's all they have to do is return to him. They have to confess their apostasy, confess their iniquity, turn to him, and he will not only restore them, he will make them glorious. O Ephraim. Again, that's another word for um, the northern kingdom, Ephraim, Samaria, Israel, all those. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So we began with this idea that they stumble because they're iniquity, and and, and we wrap that around the end of it as well, transgressors stumble in them. So what you want to be, right, is the righteous, the upright, those who follow the Lord's commandments. And if you do those things, he says you'll be blessed. That's what you have to do, Israel. I'm giving you a chance to return to me. I'm giving you an opportunity, and I'm giving you a promise about what I will do when you return. I'll do all the things I have always promised. If you'll just come to me, follow me, if we can be one again, in the same way that Hosea was required to do with his own wife, that he had to restore her. And in, in the restoration, in the taking her back after her falling away into adultery, then, then when he takes her back, she's beatified. She is made beautiful in that. So it's, it's not just you come back with uh, scars all over you and, and you look terrible and all that, but you belong to the Lord. No, he says, you come back to me and I will make you beautiful. I will absolutely make you glorious because you represent me. And so you're not going to stumble. You're, you're not going to look like you've been beaten to pieces no matter what you've gone through. He says, I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to make you glorious. It's a wonderful promise, and it's what he does for us. He, he, does, he doesn't continue to see us as the way we are when we come to him or if we return to him. He doesn't see us that way. No, it's like in the prophecy of Zechariah when Joshua, the high priest, comes before the Lord, and he's clothed in filthy garments, and he's accused by the Satan of, of look at him. He's not fit to come before you, and, and, and God's response is, hey, get him a new robe. It's very much, very much like the prodigal son. And that's exactly what the parable of the prodigal son points to. It's this picture that Hosea is painting, that that though you've gone astray, if you come back, I will make you glorious. 
in the gospel today, it's a series of parables that Jesus is telling here. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? So make sure you don't have blind guides. Make sure your leaders are in the Word of God. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. That's a that, that's a very common understanding of, of discipleship within Judaism. You don't rise above your teacher. You build off what your teacher has done and what your teacher has said, but you don't rise above the teacher. You always are the one trained by Rabbi so-and-so. And so when you teach, when you expound on Scripture, you have to say and cite who your rabbi is. And, and it's a way of building on the past, standing on the shoulders of giants. You don't, you don't go in your own direction. No, I need to know who you are and what your provenance is. Whose child are you in the sense of, uh, of being a teacher? Who taught you? And you tell me that, actually. As you teach, you tell me that. You cite your sources in order that I might know, okay, this is where he's coming from. And so it, we recognize that those who have come before us are greater than us. It's a, it's a principle that we've lost completely in the church and in our society today, because we, we, we've fallen in love with youth. And so even as we age, we want to be youthful. We want to spend the money to become useful, youthful. We want to have surgeries and do all the kinds of those kinds of things, rather than allowing that aging process to happen. Because what we've taught over the last whatever period of time within the church and within society is we have to listen to the youth. They have wisdom. Where did that come from? Where did that idea come from, and how ridiculous is the whole idea? He says, when you, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out that's in your eye, when you yourself don't see the log in your own eye? You can't see well enough. I mean, you're noticing little things in your brother and your sister there, and you're trying to help them with that, but you have a significant problem of your own. A significant problem. It's like I had a guy who, who decided at one point that he wanted to, to teach me some things and to, to, to help me see problems that, that I had in my life. But this guy was a guy that everybody said all the time because he was such a miserable human being to deal with. That's just Bob, let's say. It's not his name. Um, he's dead, but I, want, I don't want to trample on anything here. So that's just Bob. Well, that's not how Bob's supposed to be. Bob was so wrong in his approach to other human beings that everybody knew it and everybody made allowances for it, and yet Bob wanted to always help other people with sin in their life. Well, nobody ever confronted Bob about the log in his eye. And, and I'm sorry to say that never happened. I mean, I, I tried. <laughs> I tried really hard, but I couldn't do it. He, he wouldn't hear it. He says, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. This is um, a, a simple principle, right? <laughs> the figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. We've, we, this transformation begins from within. And if we're producing bad fruit, then it's because we're a bad tree. It, it, we need to, to fall on, on our knees and on our faces before the Lord. The church needs to be able to do that. 
Why do we call? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, this is one of the things that the churches run from. Well, we're not works based; we're grace based. Well, grace is contingent. Listen to what Jesus says. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house, couldn't shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And so Jesus makes grace, he makes our ability to stand in the day of trouble upon what we do. We don't just, we're not just hearers of the word only, we've got to be doers of the word. Jesus never, ever uncoupled faith and obedience. Those two things are, are not at odds with one another. Grace and works are not at odds with one another. Jesus says we're supposed to hear and do. It's as simple as that. The proof that we believe what we heard is the doing. That shows that we believe him, we trust him, and we take him as Lord. That when he says jump, we ask how high. We go wherever he tells us to go, no matter how we feel about it. But it's all those things. Is it When he says love your neighbor, he intends for us to do it, right? I mean, he intends us to do it in every way. And then he explains how we should do that. He explains who our neighbor is. He explains how we live them. He does all that in one parable, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the epistle today, Paul is on trial, remember. So, But on the next day, designing, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, who had, who had arrested him and saw this mass confusion there, and then they have to bring him in. They're ready to, ready to um, beat him. And Paul says, you can't do that. I'm a Roman citizen. So, uh-oh, that ain't going to be good. So now, so he, the tribune, unbound him, Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So he knew, the tribune knew, he was absolutely 100% clear, this guy hasn't done anything to violate Roman law. I don't have any basis on which to try him. I want to know what the accusation these Jews are bringing against this man actually is. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my whole life before God in all good conscience up to this day. In other words, I'm, not si- I'm sitting here as an innocent man. My conscience doesn't accuse me of having done anything wrong. And the high priest Annas commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Because, well, they certainly did. They believed it. They believed Paul was blaspheming here because he has all good conscience in the way he's lived his life. And then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? He's saying God's going to judge you because you're supposed to be the judge of the people here. You're supposed to be conducting a trial here. And this is nothing more than a kangaroo court. You're going you're gonna to have me struck before you even bring a charge, before I have any opportunity to refute what you have to say. You're going to go ahead and execute the punishment phase before we've actually had the trial. And he called him a whitewashed wall. Jesus called the leaders whitewashed tombs. Because what would happen was at pilgrim festivals, it, it, they, w- they would have been rendered um, unfit 
to participate in the festival if they had come near a dead body. And so what they did was, is that the time of the pilgrim festivals, they would whitewash all the places that were tombs. That way, when you come into town, you can say, nope, I got to stay away from that. And so that's what he's saying. These are, and Jesus says inside are dead men's bones. It looks good from the outside, but that's all it does. And so that's what Paul calls him. And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So during this period of time, the high priesthood bounced back and forth between Annas and Caiaphas and members of their respective households. And so it it was difficult if you weren't in Jerusalem all the time, and if you were kind of disconnected from Judaism to know exactly who it was. It was kind of like, you know, that that it was difficult to tell who who was in charge at any given time because it changed. And Paul is honestly not aware of who, it, who he was. And so he essentially is saying, I, I, I did sin there. That's wrong. If he's the high priest, then I'm wrong to have said what I said. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul looked and he says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to divide these people down the middle and they're going to be fighting one another here and they're going to like kind of forget me. So what he did, and when he said it, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So it worked, right? So now their focus is on defending their theological positions instead of uh, coming after Paul. So the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. In other words, the the Sadducees were those people who believed that that's all there is, they ain't no more. So they didn't believe in spiritual realities. They didn't believe in, they believed in the things seen, but the not, not the things unseen. They didn't believe those were real things. They thought those were figments of the imagination of theologians. So they were absolute materialists, period, end of sentence. They nothing but this. And when this life is over, then it's over. And it's not necessarily grab all the gusto you can, but it's like by any means, whatever. I mean, if there's no ultimate judgment and no resurrection from the dead, then what is to constrain your conduct? So they, they say there's no resurrection, no angel, nor spirit. Pharisees acknowledge all those things. There's a great clamor then arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit, which, or, which the Sadducees deny, or an angel, which the Sadducees deny, spoke to him? So it's possible that this man got information, got revelation from a spiritual being. It's possible that that happened. And so now they're completely and hopelessly divided. Because if you believe that there's revelation possible in that way, then you have completely divided yourself from the the Sadducees, and you've also opened the door for the possibility of revelation standing outside of what we have in our accepted tradition. So they're willing at that point, some of the scribes were willing to say, hey, it's possible it's possible that this man received revelation from a spirit or an angel. And the Sadducees didn't believe in any of those things. So now they're hopelessly divided. If it's possible to get revelation that way in in one camp, and and those things don't even exist in the other, then there's no way to reconcile that. When the dissension became violent, the tribune 
afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the bar- bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So, so he, he has the, um, the assurance, essentially, that this is God's thing. That, that, yep, I'm with you, and this is what my intention is, I, I, and I'm going to get you to Rome. You, you want to go to Rome. Well, you're going to go to Rome. I promise you're going to go to Rome. You're going to live through this trial, Paul. It's going to be okay in the end. And, and all of this, you just what's Paul calling for? He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to believe in Jesus. He's calling them to repent of hard-heartedness concerning his claims about Jesus. He's calling them also to repent of their hard-heartedness towards the Gentiles and God's um, movement to include the Gentiles in the people of Israel, into the covenant community. And that's all he's trying to do. He's preaching the gospel in every single way. It's hard to preach the gospel to a Pharisee. It's hard to preach the gospel to somebody who is a strict materialist, who doesn't believe in spiritual realities, only material realities. It's impossible. And so Paul doesn't even try. He just says, I'm just going to divide these people. And that's what I'm going to do. And that way I can take the focus off of me, and then we can move forward in some shape, form, or fashion. But this is out of hand, and I need to show the Tribune at some level how out of hand this is. And so the Tribune can't possibly reconcile any of the things that he's seeing here. But we're called always to repentance. And repentance is not just confession of sin. It's turning away from that behavior. But it's not just turning away either. It's a turning to. It's a turning to a different way of being. And that's exactly what Jesus says. And if you'll build your foundation on that, then all will go well for you. You will receive all the grace you need and more in the day of trouble.